Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome. This week on Affect Autism, I have a very special guest. We have with us today Dr. Jerry Costa, who is the founding director of the Center for Autism and Early Childhood Mental Health at Montclair State University in New Jersey. He's also a professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning and the president of ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, the home of DIR Floor Time. And he also is a Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model Expert Training Leader. He is also on the faculty of the Infant and Early Childhood Development's PhD program at Fielding University that was originally begun by ICDL. And he's the principal investigator on a project about inclusion in New Jersey among many other things, but most important to me, Dr. Costa, was that I've heard about you for years from everybody uh, since I've been learning all about floor time, DIR floor time. And um, I was told that Dr. Greenspan had considered you to be the person that he wanted to take over ICDL and um, as the president of ICDL. So because I never got to meet Dr. Greenspan, I feel like you're uh, this, the next closest thing to him, aside from his son, Jake, who I did meet. So yeah, it's, absolutely. it's a real, uh, real honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much, Derry. And boy, yes, uh, Nancy Greenspan and Jake Greenspan are, are really um, the, the most remarkable um, family members and holders of Stanley Greenspan's legacy. But we are thrilled in ICDL and the DIR floor time ways to also share that legacy. And I was privileged uh, to be um, first a student and uh, be mentored by, and then a colleague of and a friend of Dr. Stanley Greenspan. So thank you for the, uh, for the comparison. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. I saw you speak for the first time, unbelievably, at the ICDL conference last month. And your talk was about the topic we're going to cover today. And so I'm really excited to go over this. Uh, Dr. Costa has written a chapter in a book that will be published um, very soon called Emerging Programs, Emerging Programs for Autism Spectrum Disorder, published by El Sevier. And the chapter is Reconceptualizing Professional Development as Formation. So we're gonna dive right in. Uh, reading, reading this chapter brought me back to my grad school days. It was really <laughs> exciting to um, see that you started off with a quote from Karl Popper. Um, and it says, what matters is not methods or techniques, but a sensitivity to problems and a consuming passion for them. Or as the Greeks said, the gift of wonder. And didn't we hear that throughout Amen. the month at ICDL's conference? Uh, that really floor time is about that wonder. wonder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I, I love Karl uh, Popper, uh, a philosopher of science. And uh, in reading the chapter, I suspect area, one of the things I hope the readers will become aware of is that um, in trying to approach the topic of how do we best prepare our multidisciplinary workforce um, in the field of autism, particularly with all we have learned from so many of the disciplinary sciences, that I begin that conversation that I begin that sort of wondering about how best to train uh, and professionally develop our workforce by talking a bit about philosophy. Uh, 
and about the uh, underpinnings of our field. So um, I look forward to this conversation with you. And again, I appreciate uh, having the chance because I've heard so much about you as well, uh, Daria, and your um, your life as a parent and as a professional and as a, a DIR trained uh, person. So thank you for this opportunity. You're welcome and thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, in the teaching and helping professions, you mentioned that we tend to rely on transmitting knowledge by training so that the trainees develop these skills, but that ignores this interpersonal process and the affective context of our work. And uh, I mean, my very first blog at affectautism.com was called It's All About Affect and the Affect Diathesis Hypothesis of Dr. Greenspan's talking about this exact component. Uh, that's why the site is called Affect Autism. We can <laughs> affect autism with affect. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it, it just follows that, of course, when you're training multidisciplinary professionals, you would want to take the interpersonal um, into, into account. And, and you dive into this in so many different ways. I don't know how many hours we could spend talking about it, but we'll do our best to try and, and do it succinctly. Um, you mentioned that formation is about the importance of including relationships and being with as essential to the developmental process of multidisciplinary work. And you start by going into this idea of unfolding and um, the article from Sullivan from the Carnegie, Carnegie Foundation study. So did you want to just say a few words about that to start? Yeah, sure. So um, I first of all uh, use the term formation to refer to the process of professional growth uh, in the multidisciplinary um, fields that, that um, constitute the, the range of professionals that work in the field of autism and in other areas of human development, not just autism. And so I borrowed the term formation um, from different domains. And so when I did my research to identify how many other people in our field have ever used the term formation, um, a couple of things occurred. One is, and I think you'll, you'll find this uh, humorous, and I mentioned it in the chapter, that the biggest hit for the term formation when I did a Google search was Beyonce's song formation. Uh, so, uh, and it's a different kind of formation. Um, uh, she was discussing more of a military formation, kind of a, a stance of uh, power um, of, of the gatherings of many. But the other areas where I found formation to be a topic of conversation and thinking was in faith, faith formation or clergy formation. So that was more of a, a spiritual religious uh, context, uh, which I, I think I borrowed from heavily in terms of feeling that this is about uh, work that is driven by mission and meaning. Um, but the other area of formation was a series of studies from the Carnegie Foundation, where they looked at this concept of formation in a way that I think is similar to how I've been trying to think about it and writing about it, uh, where they looked at the concept of formation in terms of uh, three professions, the legal profession, uh, educators, and I think physicians with a third category. 
And the way they talk about formation is really similar to what I have tried to develop in terms of thinking of interrelated ways of developing and uh, to, to maybe cut to the chase a bit about the meaning that I have tried to describe in some detail is that I talk about formation as having to involve three interrelated ways of developing, ways of knowing, ways of doing, and ways of being with. And so um, in the uh, legal professions, uh, educators and, and medical professions, I think with the Carnegie Foundation reports shared, uh, and there's the graphic, thank you, um, thank you, Daria. And so the Carnegie Foundation, I think what I loved so much about um, the report was that it identified these uh, core notions, they didn't call it this, but it was really very similar to what I had been writing about and thinking about. And so uh, and the quote that stands out in my mind from William Sullivan, one of the authors, is that um, for identity uh, formation trumps knowledge uh, every day, right? That it is about not just what you know and what you can do, uh, we can talk more about that in a moment, um, but it's really about the, uh, the substance of, of who you are and how you are uh, in relationship to others. And so um, uh, the, the notion of formation, I think, probably uh, is best thought of as an unfolding over time. So I hope as we continue to have our conversation, I can even uh, speak a little bit more uh, about the application of and the manifestation of what formation means. Right, and, and just to give a silly example to, to uh, lighten things up for a second, my husband will always say to me, not what you say it's how you say it absolutely. the tone <laughs> absolutely and absolutely. That, that message comes across and and that's the point you make we have to have this real um idea and have to look at our own subjective responses to the work that we do and, and relationships that we form because you can train someone to do skills and teach skills but the way they, if the way they deliver it is harsh versus someone else who uses all of the affect and warm prosodic voice that Dr. Porges talks about, which you'll get into soon, then it has such a different effect. And when working with children with autism, that can have such a profound effect the way we approach them and the way they respond. Oh gosh, absolutely. I, I think we should just listen to you about this because no, because you got it. You really do. Um, and you know, the, um, the focus in our current science uh, uh, within autism uh, and the current field of practice has been dominated by a paradigm that has focused more on uh, skill acquisition by the provider and behavioral compliance in the child. Uh, and, and such that the focus has been on ensuring that certain behaviors are, um, are formed or developed. But in fact, what's driving the work and the field is really understanding that the behaviors themselves have deeper meaning, right? And, and come from internal uh, both psychological and neurobiological and interpersonal processes. So formation is a real reminder that our idea that 
being someone who is focusing on behavioral change is so limited because the behavior that we see is the end product of a long chain of internal and uh, external variables. Uh, and so um, what I, I um, have tried to do, and certainly this builds beautifully on the work of uh, Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weider and uh, the DIR community is the power of affect. I mean, uh, I loved what you said about affect autism. And so in a way, in a way um, there needs to be a parallel process of understanding um, the power of affect and just what you said. So if someone were to, and in this paradigm we currently have, that's pretty protocolized, that there are very uh, prescribed ways of, of, um, you know, of leading to behavioral change. Um, you know, we know the reality is that every single delivery of a behavioral intervention under that paradigm is delivered by a human being. Uh, it's not delivered devoid of a relationship and that human being, it turns out, have differences in their warmth, warmth in their affect and gestures and intonation. Um, in the chapter uh, and in the presentation, I developed an acronym called AGILE, A-G-I-L-E. And that uh, acronym is meant to remind us that whenever we are delivering uh, an intervention, uh, we have to think about our affect, our facial expressions, our gestures, our movement and pacing, right? The intonation of our voice that you mentioned, it turns out in many, many approaches, including Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, uh, it turns out intonation is a powerful interpersonal regulator of cardiac rhythms, of neurological excitation and calming. A harsh voice can raise our sympathetic nervous system response. A softer, calmer voice can really regulate our heart rate. Stephen Porges, a neuroscientist, talks about this idea that the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, has multiple branches. And his theory is that these branches include um, um, nerve nerves that, that uh, regulate facial musculature, as well as branches of the vagus nerve that regulate cardiac rhythms, such that a smile and a soft voice can, can regulate the heart rate, lower the heart rate of another. And that we, in terms of our biological uh, and evolutionary heritage, um, are in fact, when we are anxious or frightened or in the fight or flight or freeze response, seek out connectedness. Connectedness is a biological imperative. So I think, I think Stephen Porges' theory, polyvagal theory says it beautifully, but in fact, it's been missing as a component of the more traditional mechanistic behaviorally focused delivery systems. And in fact, it's probably something we need to incorporate in our teaching about this work. So there's a parallel process between uh, the teacher and the learner uh, among the many disciplines that we are preparing to do this work so that they in the um, formative process experience something about 
their own affective connection to the teacher and the learner, right? And that becomes part of the lesson that they will transmit interpersonally to those families and children with whom they work. So formation by pulling this all together and just what you said, by really integrating the affect relationship side of this, uh, the R of the DIR, right? The, um, uh, the idea that um, it's not just about knowledge that you have gained about the science and the literature and the field. It's not just about the skills you develop, strategies, tactics, and techniques. It's not about being a technician. It's about being in a relationship. So the ways of being with, and that is the context for all of um, what happens interpersonally. And again, this is not so far in our, from our thinking uh, as DIR floor time um, specialists. So um, I, I think bringing affect back to both the teaching sciences, as well as in terms of the therapeutic or intervention practices is really what I hope formation um, attempts to do. Yeah, and, and it reminded me of a uh, a presentation or a YouTube clip or something I saw of Dr. Tippy saying that a lot of ABA or applied behavior analysis programs that that say they're successful was just because of the good relationship that Absolutely. ABA person had with the child because um, it the way ABA is is delivered is is very dependent on that interpersonal piece. <laughs> you know, I, I, and uh, Gil Tippy, Dr. Tippy, uh, who's a, a, a wonderful colleague and friend, is absolutely spot on. In the chapter, I actually illustrate that in a number of ways, but I discuss, for example, a concept um, that often happens in science, which is called a confirmation error. A confirmation error is when you have an idea as to what is causing or leading to an event and you seek evidence to support your idea. And so that if the outcome occurs consistent with what you expected, you interpret that outcome as proof of the effectiveness of what you have done. That's a fallacy in logic. Uh, confirmation is an error. It's disconfirmation we look for. So in the field of autism, for example, um, just what Gil said, if it turns out that there is an effective intervention um, in the field of ABA, you only imagine that the effective agent is the delivery of what you are doing right, is the delivery of the strategy or technique or tactic. So I was um, in, in earlier in my, my life, very well trained in, in uh, behavior modification. And so um, the practice of um, setting up reinforcement contingencies and prompting individuals to behave and then reinforcing them uh, for their behavior uh, might lead one to think that the only reason the behavior happened was because of the intervention um, that was made. That's a fallacy, and, and here's why. Um, so I grew up in a, a small town in New Jersey called Hoboken, New Jersey, which is now a very popular uh, town uh, called the Gold Coast because it's right across the river, Hudson River from New York City. 
And um, I, I grew up uh, and, and remember in politics, there was a fascinating uh, saying. And the saying was, uh, if you drop a quarter in the middle of the block, you don't look for it on the corner where the light's better, right? You tend to look where you shine your light. Well, if in behavioral approaches, you don't shine light on affect or co-regulating or stress systems, if that's not part of your equation and you simply focus on your intervention as the only agent of change, you are in, in some sense circumscribing the world to include only what you wanna measure. Whereas there's another whole set of variables in the world uh, that would be equivalent. And in the chapter, I talk about this of ignoring instruments in our work, right? Uh, so it would be the equivalent of saying, since I never see ultraviolet light or infrared light, uh, that doesn't exist. All that exists is what I see and we know that that's not true and prisms show us otherwise. That's also true in terms of sound. There are uh, you know, very high frequency sounds and low frequency sounds that are not registering in our anatomy, uh, just the structure of our auditory system. That doesn't mean those sounds don't exist. It means we have limitations from our own neurosensory barriers. So for us to simply say, all we can focus on is observables. That's ignoring the whole world that opened up to us in the past 30, 40 years in the neurosciences, right? Alone about biometrics, about uh, imaging systems. So I talk about in the chapter how formation must remind the practitioner that there are two I's, letter I. There's ideas that have been generated to help us better understand what we see in behavior. And there are instrumentation that we now have the benefit of using. All of this is to say, to go back to Gil Tippy's comment, right? That I have worked so many times as Gil has with wonderful ABA practitioners who are warm, engaging, um, reciprocal, uh, attuned, co-regulating others. And <clears throat> I believe many times that is the agent of effectiveness. So in research and in practice, sometimes the intervention you make is effective for reasons other than you think in your theory, right? They are for other reasons that you have not yet examined. Formation, I believe, mandates that we help our workforce think and wonder as we started off with Karl Popper, wonder about the many other variables that are happening and not just look at those things that our narrow theory says we should look at. We should look at so many variables. So um, long-winded explanation, uh, Daria, but I hope it, it was clear. No, it is clear. And I mean, our biology is the way it is for a reason. Uh, you know, when parents say, hey, look out, you want the heart rate to go up because maybe Absolutely. kids are going to fall off of a, a high, you know, whatever um, level onto the ground and break his arm or something. Or there's a, a wild animal or a car about to run them over. Absolutely. And so you want to do that. But if you're using those harsh tones and in, a, you know, in every day and the child's going to get alarmed. And so, um, 
those calming tones are that polyvagal theory that you talked about that um, I, I have a podcast with Dr. Porges about that, that I can link to in the, in the write-up of this that's blog great. post. That's great, yes. Um, that, you know, that's really calming and co-regulating for the child. But um, a couple of things I wanted to, to get to, um, a couple of branches to go off on. Well, the first one kind of relates to the second one. Um, the way that you talked about how being a person who is working in this field needs to really understand that it's not just about what they do, but it's about who they are. That's right. And so bringing into account um, their own authentic growth of self, their own personal development and awareness, so that they have this intuitive sense of their service to others. And um, you gave such a powerful video demonstration of that in your ICBL presentation that was really shocking and alarming and made everyone gasp. And it's the type of thing that I don't know, you know, when they show those Stanley Milgram experiments from the yes. 60s where people are zapping people and they believe that they've killed them and they keep following orders to zap them. And they did all this research after Radiant World War II to, to yeah. find out why did people do what they did in the Holocaust and all this research came out. You watch those films in Psychology 101 or whatever, and you're like, oh my goodness. And this, this felt like that. You showed... Um, a therapist working with a mother and the mother's trying to get the child to put pegs in, in a thing or whatever. And then the child gets restless and she smacks the kid and starts yelling at the kid. And like all of us were horrified watching this and the kid starts crying and screaming like that cry that just like heart wrenching cry. Absolutely. And the therapist says, it must be really hard for you to the mother, or it must be, you know, something along those lines. And your point is, what was it in the, the learning of that in the therapist in the, formation. in the formation that made that therapist have empathy for the mother in that situation and not the child? And a couple of questions around that. Like, first of all, why is it so important? Because that's the whole point of, of this paper. But secondly, what about the people that say, oh, why wouldn't the therapist have jumped to the safety of the child first and isn't right, that unethical right, so I, I, two different I, ways to go on that one <laughs> it was a powerful um video clip and uh and i uh took it from a training film that was developed by the clinician who was in the scene michael trout michael trout is the uh, director former director of the infant parent institute institute in champaign illinois uh and there's a remarkable infant mental health specialist. He was a student of Selma Freiburg, uh, and he was one of my teachers. And so um, I feel uh, a lineage at times to Selma Freiburg. I've actually worked closely with several of her students, but Michael was remarkable. And in that moment, um, as Michael witnessed this mother and understood her history in terms of the losses she had had earlier in her life as a mother, and then when she in this presence as she's providing a testing, sorry about that, I thought I lowered that. Um, but as he provides uh, the testing, he sees the mother suddenly spank her child. And I think everyone who witnessed it really felt the pain for the child, as I think he did too, as I think he did too. 
but somehow his capacity to uh, not attend to his own sense of horror or his own sense of being upset or um, distracted by this horrible thing he saw, but to understand that this was a mother who was in pain and that allowed him to ask the question, this must, to the mother, this must be hard for you. I think he fundamentally understood that this was a mother who was behaving in a way that was um, undesirable, not at all uh, productive, but that she was operating out of her own pain and, and sort of consistent with the, the old guidance that if you um, feed a person uh, for the moment, you feed them for the moment. If you teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. I think Michael was in many ways as a clinician saying, I care about this child so much, but I care that this mother needs to be cared for so she can care for the child. So what was it in his formation? And by the way, if you remember that video clip, he modeled an authentic uh, uh, posture of caring, his voice, his affect, his gestures conveyed to this mother, I know this is hard for you. So my purpose in showing that was to, in a sense, to back up and say, we may have all in our careers been present when unfavorable things happen in families' lives. By the way, in COVID, we now have windows into families' homes, right? As we're doing virtual work, and we sometimes witness and see things that we probably would never have seen in the luxury of our offices or our centers, right? Unless you've done home visits. So the idea is that there is no protocol that you need or can follow that precisely tells you what should I do in this situation. Um, and so in some sense, the combined knowledge, the combined experience of having been a practitioner, but linked to the affective and interpersonal process is what happens, I think, in formation. Uh, and in some sense, you mentioned the term, uh, Daria, intuition. In some sense, I want to speak about that as a, as a desirable outcome of formation. But I want to say two things more about this whole lesson. Um, there's a remarkable um, self-psychologist, um, psychoanalytic self-psychologist named Heinz Kohut. And Kohut is a remarkable um, teacher about, um, about the, the therapeutic process. And... Um, he often wrote about the idea that the seasoned practitioner who has come to learn about the field and who has come to practice in the moment um, is not necessarily conscious of it, of his theory. And so he, uh, in, the, in the chapter, I paraphrase a quote um, from um, Heinz Kohut, and the quote is this, uh, if you are thinking about your theory when you're with your patient, you're not thinking about your patient, right? In that moment, if all you're thinking about is what your theory is, and by the way, if your theory, like the quarter in the middle of the block, right, 
is not shining light on the other variables that are involved, including your own affect, your own ability to regulate, engage, communicate uh, with the other, then you're actually not thinking of your patient on several fronts, right? So I think the notion of formation and why I believe ultimately what we hope for is that in the course of our personal unfolding as practitioners, that we incorporate the knowledge we have from our field, the authentic science, the literature about infant and early childhood mental health, about uh, autism and the ways of understanding the differences um, in, in brain systems and brain functioning and so on. Um, uh, you know, the, the volumes uh, of, um, of terrific literature that have been written by developmental theorists and others in the field, uh, particularly Stanley and Serena have written so much. Um, the learning of floor time, of strategies, of tactics and techniques that's important. Those are necessary, but insufficient because they have to be delivered by someone who understands the power of their affect. So what I hope happens over the course of time is that we personally unfold so that we are incorporating in the moment what we know and how we've done things and our experience with who we are in that moment and how we are in that moment. And to me, that's the closest thing to an intuitive sense of helping. It's, it's not that we casually say, well, I'll go with my gut and help this person in whatever way I think they need to be helped. It's what I'm hoping happens in all of us with time and with supervision, by the way, and with mentorship and practice is that our gut is informed by ways of knowing, ways of doing, and ways of being. And that's why formation is the concept I believe we have to cultivate. And, um, and finally, just to bring this up, um, I do speak about in the chapter how all of that cannot happen unless we recognize that each of us um, has a multiple many layers of who we are. And so I talk about a, a kind of a, a relatively simple formulation of thinking about each of us as having a public self. That's the self that everyone knows and meets and encounters people who meet us casually. There's the private self, which is really a self reserved mostly for those who know us more intimately, uh, those to whom we share ourselves on, on, a, more, uh, on a closer uh, and more intimate basis. But then there's the secret self that sometimes even we don't know about ourselves, right? And so what I say in the chapter uh, is formation must engage all three selves. And, and that means that formation must engage material that often is regarded as, regarded as private uh, in our lives. Now, that does not mean we share our personal story or narrative. That's entirely an individual choice. But it means we have to be aware there's one there. That, that when we meet families, things can get stirred up in us. You know, things can happen within us that we must pay attention to. This, this grid, which I really appreciate you sharing from the presentation and the chapter, uh, 
reminds us that, you know, uh, if we look at, for example, uh, the upper uh, left uh, hand uh, uh, quadrant, that there's the, uh, there's the self that you know and that others know uh, relative, and that's called the, private, the, uh, the public self. That's the self we all engage uh, with in everyday life, and you can talk about, you can acknowledge things about yourself, you can make adaptations. Sometimes when you realize there are things about you that maybe irritate others, and so you adapt. Uh, but then on the right upper quadrant, we have the self that you know, but others don't know. And that's your private self. And so the extent that you can really come to help yourself cultivate a way of looking at yourself as others do, uh, you make disclosures and even try to change. And sometimes you just accept that's who you are. That's just the way you are. So if we go to the lower half of this grid, uh, the quadrant on the lower left is the self that you don't know. And you may be surprised at this, but others do. Um, how many times have you been in a situation where someone tells you about something you do, but you just never realized you did it? And you don't do it. I, I gave an example in the presentation of a colleague of mine who went out to lunch with me a couple of years ago. And I was 63 or 64 at the time. So I've been around for a while. And um, we had a meal and I had a meat, a potato and a vegetable. And uh, as I'm eating, he says, you know, you eat one food group at a time. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you ate the potatoes, then you ate the vegetables, then you're going for the meat. I've been, I'm 63 and I never knew I did that. Since then, that's all I notice about myself. And I intentionally mix my food groups up to give myself a little bit of flexibility. <laughs> but there are many ways in which there are things about us that we don't know and we need others in our lives to help us see that point and to feel safe enough uh, to hear that. And then finally, uh, the final quadrant is the uh, the self that you don't know and others don't know. And that's the secret self. And that's where we need to engage in reflective practices, psychotherapy, uh, mindfulness and mindsight, a term by Dan Siegel that refers to the idea that we can cultivate an awareness of what's happening in our mind and brain without being overtaken by it. So, I mean, collectively, um, you know, Daria, I think that the term formation for me has has really come to, to be um, a central focus of how, uh, in my work at a center that is dedicated to professional development operates, that's a guiding force. We always want to think about cultivating ways of knowing, ways of doing, and ways of being with. And the ways of being with involve really promoting personal awareness, self-awareness, reflective practice, personal development. We have to really uh, do that in everything we do. So, um, you know, uh, I hope formation, I hope for those who hear this podcast and who might have a chance at some point to look at the chapter, um, I really hope that this has some meaning for you as well, um, that it's much more, our goal is much more than transmitting knowledge or teaching strategies um, that might make someone very smart or make someone a great technician, but I'm not sure if they are a promoter of human development and relationships, and that's what we need to be. And that's hard for people, like when you talk about, about this, uh, there's a certain type of person that finds it easier 
to delve into this kind of thing. Um, you know, the just being aware of your private self. Some people, you know, have, you know, there's different levels of self-awareness. Absolutely. Um, the knowable self, I had a similar example to you. Someone once told me, um, probably 20 years ago now, that I had three or four different types of laughs. And depending on how I laughed, it was the, oh, I'm politely acknowledging what you said, even though I'm not genuinely wow. used by it, versus the like genuine, that was hilarious, versus the, you know, whatever it was. And I was like, I never realized that. So of what course- a, What a discerning colleague, right? <laughs> it, oh, I think it was a personal relationship, but yeah. yeah like, uh, gotcha, to gotcha. That, to hear that now, like, of course, now when I laugh, I'm like, oh, was that my <laughs> fake laugh, my genuine laugh, my empathetic laugh or my whatever? <laughs> oh my gosh, what a great example, Terry. I have to use that. What a great example. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. are much more complex. We are such complex beings. You know, we really are. And to think that all we have to pay attention to is what we're consciously aware of and what we consciously are called upon to do. Uh, it's almost folly. Um, we are much more complicated and our, our education has to be more complicated. Our formation has to be more complicated. So um, thank you for that. It's a great example. <laughs> and I think the point about the secret self is that if you are a practitioner and um, uh, well, let me use myself as an example, because that's always easiest. I'm a mother of a child who has a diagnosis on the spectrum. And if I'm working with another parent and I see something happening, I can bring into that. Um, I can bring in a judgment that I'm unaware of about what's happening between that family based on my own experience or, you know, people that may have experienced trauma in their childhood or abuse. If they see that in clients that they're working with, it can bring up stuff that they might not be aware of how it affects the way they interact with the person, whether they suddenly close up and are not as affective and warm. Um, and, and there's so many different ways um, that, like you said, whether it's uh, psychotherapy, mindfulness, mindset, the reflective practice and having those um, colleagues where you can really bounce things off of and get feedback from. And especially um, when you talk about reflective supervision. So yeah. having that safe relationship with your supervisor about the work that you do and same thing that we do in floor time where we might wonder with a parent like, hmm, I wonder, um, yeah. your child did this. I wonder, you know, hmm, what do you think it might be? And then the parent reflects on it. And then the person will say, hmm. Similarly, with the practitioner, the reflective supervisor can say, hmm, I yeah. noticed when the parent did this, did that bring something up for you? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, Daria, that in the chapter and, and what you just said, I think when we cultivate ways of knowing, it's really not just about information from the science, but it really is cultivating a culture of wonder, of really continually saying to yourself, you know, look, because when you have something in your own life that is similar to what is happening in the lives of the people with whom you are working and helping, um, 
you know, that is both a great opportunity for empathy, but also a great threat. Uh, to the work because um, I just gave a presentation last week with a colleague of mine about the quote-unquote wounded healer that all of us have wounds all of us have experiences or things in our lives that we struggle with and that can help us have the most empathy for others but it might also at times lead us to confuse um, our needs with the client's needs. I had a great supervisor, Dr. David Peters, who would say to me, and I think I said this in the chapter, because I often quote him, uh, that says, we need supervision to save our patients from ourselves, right? Yeah. And I, but so, so this is complex, you know, this is not kind of just nice stuff. Let's just talk over our work and figure it out. It means you have to confront sometimes your own woundedness. And again, uh, to be sure people get the message, reflective supervision is not about disclosing your personal material, although sometimes in the good supervision that happens when you feel safe. Uh, that's more the, the domain of psychotherapy, but it means you have to know you have personal material. Mm -hmm. That there's a, you know, uh, I wrote a, a chapter in 2006 about infant mental health consultation, where I, I said one of the benefits of infant mental health as a field is, uh, is that, and I used the phrase that came from, I think it was the Baltimore Sun when a young girl, Virginia, in the 1800s asked the editor if Santa Claus existed. Uh, he, the response was, yes, there is a Santa Claus. Well, in my chapter, I wrote, yes, there is an unconscious, that we do have an unconscious. We do have a way of, of uh, not being fully aware of all the things in our lives. So, uh, and that's, that's why we need the supervision. So formation is dedicated really to that being with part that we we tend to have gotten uh, done a good job on the knowing and the doing uh we just haven't done so well on, on the being being with and by the way the dangers of what's happened in our society now science one way of thinking about the progress in science and this comes from um um stephen pepper philosopher of science he talks about um one way of thinking of science growth is called the context of discovery, where we really discover ideas and wonder about the meaning of what we see and certainly engage in research, but keep wondering, don't close off. And then there's something called the context of justification, which is where you do the quantifying, the hard science, the data collection, and data is not the same for everyone. What's happened in our society is we have diminished the context of discovery and we've overdeveloped the context of justification. We are in a society that you have to measure everything. You have to quantify everything, even if the quantifying process is inaccurate, even if you're measuring things that don't make any, have great meaning. You know, the context of justification in early childhood education, I, I worked years ago and I still work in that field. There was, I wish I could remember the person who gave this quote, but the quote is, you don't fatten the calf by weighing it all the time, right? You don't fatten the calf by weighing it all the time. We tend to measure and measure and measure, but don't think about whether or not what we are measuring is actually the important thing is, you know, Einstein supposedly said, not everything that can be counted counts and that everything that counts can be counted, right? So this whole notion of justification uh, and discovery is kind of twisted. 
I actually think the concept of formation is about reminding us of the field of discovery, of the two eyes, the ideas and instrumentation that can lead us to think about things differently. So, uh, but it ends ultimately, or it lands, not ends, ultimately in how do we help the workforce we are developing uh, to be fully present uh, in the work they do with, with the, the in, you know, infants, toddlers, children, and families. You gave a good sneak preview into the podcast I'll be doing with Dr. Gil Tippy about his chapter in the same book that great. will be coming out on good education and how oh, great, great. it's just measurement, 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 just to show that we're doing something. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, Gil is, Gil is wonderful. I, I look forward to seeing that. Now, what I wanted to um, uh, sort of end with was your important um, personal unfolding. What does that look like as you train professionals or form professionals? And um, as we mentioned, I just wanted to make a side note. Not every professional is necessarily willing to be formed in the way that you're discussing. So, you know, it's very easy to do ABA type programs. You follow instructions, you do this, you do this with your child and it's done. And I think a lot of parents find comfort in that because I yeah. want to do these methods yeah. and I want to see results. And Amen. it's hard to be in it. And it's hard when your child's triggering you and you're saying, stop that behavior, it's wrong, you should know better, instead of looking at the why behind the behavior. That's a lot harder to do. And similarly, as a practitioner, it's a lot harder to take a look at yourself and understand the factors that you bring into it and, and um, without feeling judged and, and insecure and all of those other things. So it takes a special person to really be a good floor timer. And um, uh, the second thing before I get into those points was uh, a, a talk that Gil Tippy gave. And I'm, I'm pretty sure um, I, he was talking about both Dr. Brazelton and Dr. Greenspan. And I'm pretty sure it was Dr. Brazelton that he said um, when people were around him and any pictures you saw, like Dr. Tippy as a grown adult um, wanted to jump into his arms. Like he just had Absolutely. that presence of like, you know, I'm so safe. Oh, come to me, you know, and I just want to jump in your arms too, which Absolutely. you everybody giggle. But um, that's the type of thing that you're talking about. Like you, you want to have that safe um, environment and that's hard to do because people find it really hard to trust. And um, when you, you made such a good point, um, which I want to lead into the, the last um, discussion that we have here about this paper, you made such a good point that our, our children on the spectrum have so much going on and so many reasons to not trust what's happening around them. And it's so much more important to make them feel safe and secure and to use those uh, to, to really presume competence and to really believe that they are not misbehaving um, and not trying to do something to harm us even if they're punching us in the head, which, you know, some people will say, well, that's ridiculous. They punch you in the head. That's wrong. But why are they doing it? Absolutely. Um, we, that's a whole other podcast, but we've talked about that in other, uh, in other episodes. That's but, a great point. But the, the point that you make so important that formation calls practitioners to, to promote personal unfolding, meaning that we developmentally and professionally become who we are 
our knowledge, our actions, our experiences unfold and become integrated by one, exploring your own sensory systems. Um, if you don't know your own sensory system, True. how are you going to understand your child's and, and your child's is so much more complex if you're not yourself on the spectrum. Um, read first person literature. That has opened my eyes so much in the last few years, reading accounts from self-advocates. Unbelievable. Yeah. Experiences and, you know, nothing about us without us. That's why ICDL really makes um, such an effort to include self-advocates and be informed by self-advocates on everything um, that DIR Floor Time teaches and, and presents and uh, forms in, <laughs> in the professional. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and then the, you also mentioned this um, still face experiment video of Edtronic. Now uh, I did a podcast with Dr. Josh Fader who he had mentioned it in the podcast, but what it is is they did this experiment where the baby and mom are facing each other and blah, 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 blah. And then the mother is instructed to just sit like this and have no reaction whatsoever. And the baby gets so distressed. And so you made such a good point in saying, what if the child is the one not showing any affect? And a lot of times our autistic children are, are not showing that affect. And what does that do to us right. as a parent? And so being aware of that affect attunement, that reciprocal process of um, being attuned with someone else and, and you know, matching the affect that, that you provide to what the child needs and their individual profile and being attuned in that way. And finally, you had science as a field of inquiry guided by different paradigms, which you just went into in detail. But I just, I thought that was so important to bring up that, those points, that those all need to be a part of the formation of professionals. I think so. And, and thanks sir, for going through that list. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Corinne Catalano and I have been using the still face paradigm as a kind of metaphor of wondering about what it might feel like in, in this case, if not the mother in, in the mother baby analogy, if, if it's not the mother who's making a still face, but from the mother's point of view, the child is a still face, that the child's affective engagement somehow is because of neurobiological and neurosensory differences. The child is rendered less available for engagement and what that feels like for the parent. So, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. And, and um, we talked about that pretty poignant example of the video clip uh, that I showed in my presentation of Michael Trout. And I want us to think about how critical it is for all of us in everyday life to somehow experience the, the, uh, the idea of being felt with, of being felt with, that we have a feeling state and someone can feel it with us. Dan Stern and others have written about affect attunement, which is how we make every effort to convey to a baby uh, or a nonverbal uh, person or to a, an individual fully functioning, how we make every effort to convey to the person, I th I'm struggling, but I think, I want you to know, I think I'm feeling what you're feeling. This inner experience, it's not mirroring only, it's not, you know, when they're sad, you show sadness in your face, that's important. 
but the tone of your voice, the movement of your body, uh, the facial expressions that say that the person I'm being felt with, right? That act of attunement is a critical foundation for everything we do with our families, with the children on the spectrum, with the adults on the spectrum. It may be we have to learn something about the individual difference of that child in terms of how best to do that. It might not be just facial expressions. It might not just be voice. It may be posture. It may be sitting in silence. Uh, some of the first person accounts, by the way, Donna Williams, who's this remarkable uh, self-advocate and wrote a book, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago called Nobody Nowhere, where she described that the, the best time she would have with a friend is to sit next to them in silence that that was how she felt most comfortable. Um, John Elder Robeson, who wrote this book, Look Me in the Eye, and I had a chance to meet John Elder Robeson several times, including do, doing a webinar with him two weeks ago. And he would say all the time, the manuals, DSM says, I'm not interested in relationships. I'm very interested in relationships. I just don't quite know how to go about forming them. So this idea that we have to modify the way we are uh, that helps those with whom we work who may be neurodiverse helps them feel felt with and connected with that's a challenge it's not an easy thing it's certainly not as accomplished by following following a rigid protocol that says here's how you do it you know so and that in that regard Formation is to me the most challenging thing. I, I turned 69 a couple of days ago, and I maybe. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. But maybe, maybe I'm getting a little bit better at it in terms of integrating it all into my presence. I don't know if I'm there yet, but it is a process to work towards. Um, and I hope formation is an idea that gains some traction. I hope it, you know, the only benefit it will have is if it makes leads people to somehow think about uh, ways to help people be formed in this work. And I hope it does. Well, I just, I love it because um, it, it just, it has everything that the DIR model has that we talk about all the time with children. We want them to feel understood. We want them to um, feel safe with us. And if you don't have that all along the line, <laughs> then it's gonna be hard to have that with the child. If the practitioner doesn't have that with their supervisor, if the practitioner doesn't have that with the parent and the parent with the child, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, all, Amen. Amen. it all is important and it's all hard, but it's um, harder and harder the way our society is moving where everyone's on screens all the time and everybody's more isolated than ever before, not just because of the pandemic, but just, you know, single family homes, um, people living apart, like it, not everybody grows up in the same village together anymore, like they used to, or worldwide now, and right. That's right. Um, it makes it harder and harder to just, and everything's rushed all the time, so it makes it harder and harder to just sit down and be with someone, and, and feel comfortable, and just enjoy their company, and um, um, Absolutely. yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. <laughs> and even this medium, which I think in many ways during COVID has helped us know that when we can't be there in person the way we really love to, 
there may be a way that this medium can help us anyway, stay connected, you know? And so, but I think that is important. Um, what you said is absolutely the case. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Costa, for being here today and explaining all this this um, information in the paper on formation. And um, it, again, it's been great hearing from you. And um, I forgot to ask you about a good Stanley Greenspan story, but maybe we can do that next time. Absolutely. I have a bunch of them. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. And thank if you're you so listening much. on audio, you can see a video of this podcast at affectautism.com or on the YouTube channel for Affect Autism. You can see um, a write-up with some links to some of the things we've talked about at affectautism.com under, um, you can look up Dr. Costa, C-O-S-T-A. And thanks again. We'll be back soon. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.